The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. In case you aren't aware, Myrtle Beach is not a major metropolitan area. And some of you, that is uh, like a relief. You moved here from uh, New York or Chicago or Cleveland, um, bless your heart, it's a move up, but uh, anyway, uh, or from Cleveland or, or wherever, and uh, you're here because it's not a major metropolitan area, and some of you is to your chagrin. You're like, man, we can't get any decent food around here. There's only, you know, fried shrimp or whatever. Is it 800 fried shrimp restaurants, but, you know, we're, we're kind of get some good food or, like, you're particular, like, you like culture or art, and you're like, man, it's, there's just really nothing here, and it kind of gets at you, but... Whatever you think about, like, Myrtle Beach and the size of the town is, we live in a boom town. There are 400,000 people, believe it or not, 400,000 people in the Myrtle Beach metropolitan area. And that has doubled in the past 25 years. Uh, I was at a a meeting, actually, in uh, Charlotte this week, and this really awesome old dude met me, and we, we told him where we were from. He said, oh, Myrtle Beach, that's the seventh fastest growing metropolitan area in the country. Stop and think about that. The seventh fastest growing metropolitan area in the country, and that's from, I'm geeking out on it, that's 2012 to 2013 data. That's not even, that's, the, the market is even picking up now, and even more people are coming in. We live in a uh, a boom town, and, and what that does is that creates sort of a unique environment. So you have Myrtle Beach is in the heart of the South, sort of the buckle of the Bible Belt, and then you have all you guys that moved down here. So I'm I'm from here. I grew up in the country outside Conway. So I say y'all, and it's not like put on, it's like for real, and I eat grits for breakfast and not the nasty cream of wheat that most of you guys eat, and I apologize if that's the way that you grew up, or oatmeal. And just, this is a public service announcement, just don't put sugar in grits. I, I just please, I beg of you, please do not put sugar in grits. But I digress. I'm passionate about breakfast foods, as you guys have picked up on before. But uh, what that does is that because, because most of the people have moved here and aren't actually from here, and they're from different regions of the country, so you have this sort of like southern Bible Belt thing going on, but also all you guys from New Jersey, welcome, thank you for the pizza and the bagels. And from New York who moved down here, like you have this sort of weird cultural mix. You have young people that come here to go to school at Coastal or to uh, serve in the service industry, and then you have retirees who come down to play golf and cut their lawns 18 times a week and, and get irritated at me because I'm next door and I own, only like barely coast by. But it, it, when you mix all that together, it creates a sort of a, a weird environment. Everybody is sort of passing through Myrtle Beach. Think about it. Nobody is actually from here and everybody is generally passing through. There are very few people that come here and say, hey, I'm going to live here forever. There's students who are here for school. You have young families who are here on their way working up to something bigger. And you have retirees who are passing through on their way to, you know, a retirement home or death. And my apologies if that's that is who you are, but that, we're all passing through. We, we come here to this area, and we're not from here. We don't put down roots, and we sort of use the area. We use the beautiful beaches and the golf and the, the people and the, the sunshine and, and all that stuff. We use that up, but we're, never, we're not really, we're like consumers. We don't really put our roots down and figure out ways to give back to the community. And when you put that all that in, it can be sort of be sort of a, a lonely place a weird place. And you have a, a, a spiritual environment that's charged with both Southern religion. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody here from the South? 
Religion, yeah, so you know, like, you know, like, Southern, when I say Southern religion, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like, you go to the church that your grandpappy went to because he helped build it, and, like, you, you, the people that you party with on the weekends, the same people you go to church with on Sundays, and your life looks totally different, but it doesn't matter to anybody because you're sort of punching your card in and getting your, your, your dues, and you're sort of making your way through, and then you have sort of this kind of mix of irreligion. You can come to Myrtle Beach and you can party, right? You can live a, like a, a great party life. You can, you can live it up in Myrtle Beach if you want to. I've met some, anyway, met some guys in the, the uh, grocery store, and they were looking for, you know, party supplies, and they were just like, this place is the greatest. They'll let you do anything around here. So you have this whole mixture of religion and irreligion, southern religion and irreligion all mixed up, and it creates sort of a weird environment, and that's why we wanted to plant a church. Because as you may have noticed, there's a lot of churches in Myrtle Beach. But a church who can speak to both the religious and the, and the irreligious and say, hey, just because you punch your card in church does not mean that your relationship with God is right. And just because you have been baptized, that does not mean your relationship with God is right. And you may be running around doing whatever you want to do, but who... Who can speak to those people, both those groups of people together and say, this is what God, this is what the gospel is all about. See, we believe that whenever you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did for you, then that revolutionizes your life. When you discover the one who you're created for and who you're created by and your relationship with him clicks, whether you come from a religious background or an irreligious background, you find the reason for life, the reason for living. And whenever you meet him and the, the power of the gospel revolutionizes you, it revolutionizes your identity. You're not basing your identity on how much you have in your bank account or how much money you have rolling in or what car you drove up here or what gated community or non-gated community you live in, how many bedrooms are in your house or where your parking space is at work or where you work. Your identity and values based solely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And you know what? That never changes. The money in your bank account changes. Your fashion changes. You may be beautiful today, but 10 years from now, you won't be as beautiful today as you are today. If you're young and beautiful and in your peak, you can't hold on to it. You can't base your identity in that. Whenever you meet him, he revolutionizes your identity. You can be based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that never changes for you. And whenever that happens, then you can only respond in worship to him. Whenever you see the one who he created for, and he's the ultimate thing in all the universe and outside of the universe and all eternity, he's the one you're created for, then your whole life becomes a life of worship back to him. And what that does is whenever you are worshiping God and your identity is revolutionized by the gospel, then and only then can you be free to have deep, meaningful relationships with other people. Because otherwise, your relationship with other people will be, will be governed by your always constantly vying for how do they think about me? What are they, how are we doing? Do they think good about me? Am I good in their eyes? I'm always trying to judge how other people are seeing me. And so I'm putting out my best face forward, your Facebook face, your Instagram face. So everybody sees how cool you are and how awesome you are. They don't see how messed up you are inside. Well, the gospel revolutionizes that. It says your identity isn't based upon your performance. Your identity is based upon Christ's performance on your behalf. And so that frees me. I can let you guys know just what a stinking jerk I am. 
I can be honest with you how messed up my life is. I can tell you about my frailties and my failures because I'm not basing my identity and value upon Jesus, uh, on myself, it's on the, his work for me. And that's what creates true community. We want to be a people who are built around Jesus, worshiping him, living in deep community with each other, and then we turn in mission and telling people around us. Just as you would tell people around you about a great new restaurant you discovered or a great new band you discovered or a movie that you watched, very naturally, you would naturally tell people about the most important person in the world, the one who you created by and who you created for. But whenever you come along and you plant a church in a boom town, it creates some, uh, it creates some, some interesting dynamics. We've already seen that happen on a small level here. Some of us come here from a background of religion. Some of us come back from a background of no religion at all. Uh, some of us have become believers here. Some of us were already believers. But whenever you see what we're praying for to happen here, is that to happen at an even larger scale? We're praying for a spiritual awakening to happen along the Grand Strand. And whenever that happens and you see an influx of people into a church plant in the middle of a boom town, some things happen. And that's what was going on in the, in the church in Corinth. Paul came and planted a church, and he came when he planted the church at Corinth. He was actually on a kind of a, a down place in his own ministry. He was kind of, he was, he was, uh, he had had a couple of like really tough things that had just happened. And so he goes to Corinth, which is like, it was the city, it was situated, you have northern Greece and you have southern Greece. And it was connected by this little turkey neck that we call an isthmus between it. And it was about four miles wide. And the city of Corinth sat right there in the middle of it, so it was a perfect place to make money. If you, if you were going to carry something from southern Greece to northern Greece or vice versa, you had to pass through Corinth. And if you were going to take something from east to west or vice versa, then you would usually, even that was by ship, you would usually take that still through Corinth. Because if you were going to sail around the bottom part of Greece, it would take an extra couple hundred miles. But as arduous as it might sound, it was a lot easier to actually take the ship out of the harbor, roll it across the four-mile isthmus, and drop it in the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. And so it was a great place to make money. It had been sacked by the Romans because they had got their, they had sort of did a little revolt against the Romans, and they came in and they sacked the city of Corinth, tore it up. There was nobody left. And it was about 146 B.C., but 100 years later, Julius Caesar said, hey, that's a great place to make money, and so they reestablished a city there. And so the city was actually a very young city by the time that Paul comes in, but it is booming. There's somewhere between, and I know this is a great range, but somewhere between 250,000 people and 600,000 people living in the city of Corinth. If you went to Corinth, you weren't from there. Because remember, a place had been ransacked. You went there searching for money to make your name. Same reason you may have come to Myrtle Beach or you may have come to Myrtle Beach looking for the endless summer. You went there looking for something. People from all different kind of backgrounds, a sort of boomtown mentality. People from all over the world. They don't have family. They don't have a tradition. They don't have history there. The church that he founded, though, was an incredibly fast-growing church in this fast-growing town with people from all different kinds of backgrounds. And it was an incredibly spiritual church. He starts out the book by saying, hey, you guys are, like, he's describing what a kind of church they are. They're a very spiritual church, and they're very gifted church. They have a lot of, you think about it, the city of Corinth would draw a lot of gifted people who are going there to make money, and then those people become believers and join the church. They have a, a church of really gifted, motivated, uh, really uh, 
driven people all together. So that's a recipe to have a lot of messes. And that's why Paul is writing to the church of Corinth that even though it was fast growing, it was incredibly spiritual, he has some issues that he's taken to task on. And so that's why it's interesting that right here in the middle of the book or towards the end, you have this chapter, which is one of the most famous book, uh, famous little passages in the whole Bible. This is uh, perhaps behind, behind the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. This might be, this is on the Mount Rushmore of Christian passages. This is the ultimate coffee mug passage. You guys seen it on a coffee mug before? Or maybe you've seen it on like a Christian throw rug or, or, or put it on like, a, like, like the old ladies wear it, like have like the, um, man, that's a, I, I love old people. I don't know why I'm, I'm not knocking the old people today. But like you might go into old lady, old Christian's house and they might have like a, like a, a, a blanket that has it like stitched into the blanket or, or, or maybe this, or you've probably seen it on like a Christian calendar like with sunsets or sunrises or maybe like cute little kittens like on, on like you know love is patient they're like two little kittens playing with each other right? you know it's, it's like a, it seems like a cute like a, a beautiful poetic passage like befitting of a kitten calendar right here in the middle of the book of Corinth of First Corinthians, which is kind of interesting because if you've been following along, then you see like Paul has been taking them to task. Jonathan is like to call First Corinthians the, uh, the woodshed series. Like he's constantly taking us behind the woodshed and dealing with our problems, dealing with the problems here in Corinth. But even though this might seem to be the ultimate like cute little poetic, sweet little passage. We read them at weddings, we recite them, we put them on sweatshirts. It's actually a very strong and confrontive passage. Uh, I, you guys heard of the acid test before? Do you know what it is? I'm not a chemist, but you know, I have Wikipedia. So uh, what the acid, I was like, I've said it before, like why actually is an acid test? So it's a way to test gold to see if it's true if it's real or not. And so what they do is if you have this stone that's purported to be gold or the, the piece or whatever, you would have a, a black stone, a black rock, and you would scrape the gold, or you will scrape the gold on the black rock, and that would leave like a mark. And then you put this one kind of acid on that that's known to not eat away gold, but to eat away other materials. And so if you put that acid on there and it eats it away, you know already it's not gold. And then you put another acid on that you would know that does dissolve gold if, it's, if the mark is still there. And if, then if the gold stays after the first acid, but it is gone after the second acid, then you know that it's real. It's the acid test. And what Paul is describing for us here is the acid test of true Christianity. It's the acid test of real spirituality. What he says, he starts off, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The first thing he's saying here is that Love alone is the fuel for true spirituality. See, the Corinthians thought they were very spiritual people because they, their behavior looked a lot different than it did before they were Christians. They were having a lot of 
spiritual and religious experiences. They were very gifted. They could preach with the best of them. They could serve with the best of them. They could play music with the best of them. Whenever they would gather together, they're praying for each other and having all kinds of cool and crazy and or, depending on how you're put on the hook, cool and or crazy things happening in their midst. People are speaking in tongues. People are prophesying. People are, people are actually being healed in their midst. He admits that. People are being healed in their midst when people are praying for them. There's full, it's a crazy, uh, crazily, amazingly spiritual church and he says none of those things are the determiners of whether you are spiritual or not he says first of all if you're religious see verse one if i speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love he i am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal he's saying religious or spiritual experiences alone are not sufficient see there's there's a number of different ways that we can use to change our behavior. All of us in here have certain lists on our, sort of in our mental list in our mind of here are good traits that I have and here are some bad traits that I have and I need to mitigate these bad traits and I need to change myself in some way. I know I need to be changed. And so the question is, how do we experience change? And there's only three ways that we ever experience change. It's either fear, pride, or love. You motivate yourself and you motivate your children and you motivate the people around you to change either by fear, by pride, or by love. Think about it. If you're a parent, how do you motivate your kids? All right, and this is nothing wrong with this, but how do you motivate your kids? You say, all right, if you do this, then, um, then if, you, if, you, if you do this bad thing, then really bad punishment will come. You hear me? Yes. And so when they do something bad, you administer the bad punishment, and then you say, if you do it again, you're going to get this again. Then you do that a hundred times over and over and over again. You're, you're trying to motivate them to stop doing the bad thing by fear of some sort of uh, bad thing that's going to happen in return. That's not necessarily bad. It's trying to keep people from doing bad things, but it's not, it doesn't change the heart. If, you're, if you're, I'm doing something out of fear, I'm not doing it for any virtuous reason. I'm doing it because I don't want the bad things to happen in return. If, if I'm not looking at porn because I'm afraid that my wife is going to find out, then, and if I stop doing it because I'm afraid my wife is going to find out, but I still have lust in my heart, it's better for me not to look at the porn. But the problem is, there's still that in my heart. And I need that to change. The other way we motivate ourselves, we motivate our children or each other around us is by pride. You say, look, you don't want to be like that guy, right? You don't want to be like the loser. Look, hey, see the kid who's like uh, over there and, and he's like picking his boogers and nobody likes him? Like, like you don't want to be like him. He's not talking to people. He's not being a nice kid to the friends around him. You want to be a good kind of kid. So we motivate ourselves or our kids by pride. You don't want to be like that guy. But what's the motivation of either way? It's based on self-interest. And Paul is saying we need something to change the core of who we are. That if you have a spiritual experience alone, that's not changing the core of who you are. If, if, he's also saying, look at uh, verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, he's saying great learning or religious knowledge alone are not sufficient. You may have... You may have filled your mind with what the Bible teaches. You may know theology. You may know doctrine. You may be able to quote the book of Ephesians, frontwards and backwards. You may be able to argue and debate with the, with the best atheist at work. But knowledge alone does not change your heart. 
You can, you can know and memorize a lot of scripture and be doing it for, out, of, out of pride because you want to know more than the other people around you. You can, you can know a lot of scripture. You can, you, can, you can learn a lot of things. You can have your mind filled with Christian knowledge and yet be motivated by fear because you're afraid the people around you will find out that you're a fraud if you don't have the right verse to, to say back, if you don't know the right Christianese thing to say whenever somebody asks you how you're doing or what you think about something. But he's saying, that's not enough. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. He's saying great or small deeds, whether good and or religious, are not sufficient. You may be a really good person. You may nail, you may, you may, you may nail your to-do list every day. You may do your quiet time every day. You're reading the Bible. You're praying. You're talking nice to people. You're rarely rude to them. Except when they get your, your order wrong in the, in the fast food line. But that's a whole other story. They had it coming. You may be nailing behavior. But it can be motivated by fear or pride. Do you look at the people around you who are not as nice as you? Who get more irritable than you do? And you think, man... I'm so glad I'm not like that. I'm a lot more spiritual than they are. Or again, do you act nice to people because you're afraid of what they think about you? Or afraid of what the Christians around you are going to think about you? Afraid the Christians around you are going to find out what kind of fraud that you are? It doesn't change our heart. And Paul is saying, I can do all those things, but if I don't have love, it's empty and nothing. And then lastly, he says, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, now wouldn't that be an awesome, like, Christian, right? But if I have not love, what do I gain? Nothing. Acts of, of sacrifice or heroism alone are not sufficient. You can play the martyr out of pride. You can do good deeds to other people out of a fear of what they think about you or other people around you think or out of a pride, like, look at how good I am. And when people say, man, that was so nice of you, whatever you say on the outside, you're like, oh, don't say anything, but inside you're saying, darn right it was. Darn right it's nice. And that's why Paul is saying if we're being motivated by fear or pride, then we are ultimately being motivated by self-interest and not love. And love alone can be the fuel for our life. We need our motives changed. Secondly, he's saying the second acid test of true spirituality is the nature of our love. Love alone is the measure of our life. Uh, people define love in a lot of different ways. But if there's any question about how Paul is defining love, look at this passage, okay? Now, take your, take your coffee mug lens off, and you're like, I'm going to a wedding, and hearing somebody say this like bit of scripture poetry glasses off, and just look at this, what it's saying straight out. First of all, 
Love, this is what love is. So he said before, like, love alone can be the fuel for our spirituality of our life. Anything else is motivated by self-interest. And here's the measure of love. Love is patient and kind. Not a patience and a kindness that's motivated by fear or pride or self-interest, but true patience and kindness. That's not keeping a, a record of your patience and kindness versus the other person's patience and kindness. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'll be patient and kind to you, and as long as, like, you're patient and kind to me back and forth, we have this scale going on, and when it starts getting tilted in this way, then I get a little bit irritated, and when the scale falls over here, then I am just out. But he's saying love is patient and kind, Not some of the time, he's saying all of the time. Love does not envy or boast. How are you doing with that? I'll be honest. When when somebody tells me bad news about somebody else, there's a part in me that rejoices a little bit. Because I'm judging myself by, I'm very competitive by nature, so if somebody else is doing poorly, then it puts me that that much further ahead. Somebody, I'm just being honest with you guys. Somebody lost their job. Man, I didn't. It puts them down, it puts me up, it keeps the distance between me and everybody else a little bit further. And he's saying love doesn't even have that initial reaction in your heart. Love is not envious of other people. Can you imagine how freeing that would be? How freeing would it be to drive by a beautiful house and not be the slightest bit envious of the people who are living there? How great would it be to be so free to be able to get in somebody's car that is clearly nicer than yours or pulls up beside you at a stoplight and not be the slightest bit envious about the other person? It would be freeing. But how many people in here can say that we're free of that? Or does not boast? If you raise your hand and you're a southerner, you are an expert at the backdoor boast. It just comes in our DNA. And you southerners know what I'm talking about. It's the way to boast about yourself without appearing to boast about yourself. Even that initial sort of a knee-jerk response, that impulse after something happened, after you, after you like really do something really, really well to want to crow about it a little bit, he says that is not love. Love is not arrogant or rude. He didn't just say it's not arrogant or rude to coworkers. Or to strangers, but even to your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, wife, your kids. See, that's the easiest place, at least for me. I can put on a good face with strangers and people who I rarely see, but the more I see somebody, the better I know them, the more likely I'm to let the real color shine through and be arrogant and be rude with them. It does not, ins- how you doing? It, isn't, it does not insist on its own way. Whew. Megan, you don't have to say amen on that one. It does not insist 
on its own way. How much energy do you and I expend on trying to make people around us do things the way that we want them done? To talk to me the way I want them to talk to me. To, to have my life around me built, away, built around the way I want it to be built around. And, I don't, and in that moment, because you're like, you don't see it from the outside, you just think, that's the right way to do it. This is the right way to talk to me. This is the right way to run our household. This is, I had, Megan and I got, got married, and I had a lot of unwritten rules about the right way to do this and the right way to do that. And she had a very different idea, and we constantly and consistently and still clash over it. I have very, like, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, like, you don't, you buy a particular kind of toothpaste, and I've researched it, so I know the best kind to have, and then you don't, you don't just squeeze it like an animal or barbarian from the middle and squeeze it. You start from the bottom, and you work your way out, so that way it's, it's always there for you. Everything has a place. When you walk in, and this is ironic because there's like three pairs of my shoes around the house now. She's, she's influenced me. But when you walk in and you take your shoes off, you put them where they go immediately. That's just the way it works. It's only common sense to me. And you have the same ways. But to you, it seems the right way to do things. But to the people around you, it seems like you're what it really is. That you and I think that we're the king or queen in our own little kingdom and that people around us should bow to us and do the way, do things the way that we want them done. Either for me or if they know what's best for them. It is not irritable or resentful. Think of how freeing it would be if you, if you would, didn't get irritated at every stupid thing the people around you do. Or you didn't get resentful when people do the wrong thing towards you. Or they get something that you had rightfully coming your way. Or they don't see what you really deserve. When you're at work and you work really hard, but the person beside you works half as hard as you do, but they get more uh, accolades, think of how freeing it would be if you could not be resentful towards them or irritable to your spouse. Think of how happy your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend or your kids or your friends would be if you didn't get irritated over every little thing. But he says that's what love is. It doesn't even have the knee-jerk reaction to be irritable or resentful. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. See, it's easy to rejoice with the truth or justice when it's coming to somebody else. What about when it's coming to you and you've been wronged? And then if we weren't already like this cute little coffee mug verse is like turn on us. Look at verse seven. This is the measure of love. Love bears all things. It means it puts up with all things. It acknowledges here that 
everything some people do to us and do around us isn't going to make us happy. Like, Christians aren't walking around like, hey, nothing bothers me. Anything you say to me doesn't bother me at all. It says that, no, when people around you use you, they talk to you in a way that you don't appreciate, they do things to you that you don't appreciate, that you bear it up. See, when some people, like, this is a counting system that we have between us. When somebody does wrong to me, my knee-jerk reaction is want to like, take something back from them so we can be even. But what he's saying is that love takes that as a loss on my side. You borrow $20 from me, I'm going to borrow $20 back from you. You say something bad to me, I'm going to say something commiserate back to you that's bad. But it says, no, you bear that. You take it and you just take a loss on it. Then he says it believes all things. Imagine the, what the people around us would feel if we really believed in them. If we weren't secretly looking for their little failures so that we can remind them of them so we can feel better about ourselves so they can feel worse about themselves. It hopes all things. What if you really, the, every person you came in contact with, you were truly hoping for better things for them and from them? And then he says, it endures all things. It lasts. Love sticks around. How are you doing with those? See, some people say that love is a feeling. Something that I feel today and I don't feel tomorrow. Sort of like I feel happy today because I heard a happy song on the way to work or, you know, I, I didn't get any red lights on the way to work, so I'm happy today. I'm, I feel in love today because the person, the person or people who I love are taking care of me. So I love them today. I feel loving. It's something that I can fall into and it's something I can fall out of. Some people say love is a feeling. So most of our songs and movies are based upon love being a great feeling that overtakes you and therefore you should just go along with the wave wherever it takes you. And when the wave pulls back and goes away, love is over and you wait for the next wave to come in. And some people say that love is a commitment. It's being faithful to a promise. Love is saying, I'm, I'm with you, I'm around you, and I said I love you and so I'm going to stick around. That's what, that's what love is. Some people say that love is a verb. It's not anything until you act. That love is action to each other, back and forth. But what this is saying is that love is something more and deeper than that. Love is not simply a feeling, though there are feelings. Love is not simply a commitment, though there is commitment involved. Love is not simply a verb or actions, though it does definitely involve actions. Love is a person. When we say that God is love, we aren't saying that he acts loving. We aren't saying that we judge God to be loving because his actions seem to line up with love, and so therefore God is loving. What we're saying is that loving actions that we see between two people are a a dim mirror of the very nature and character of God. 
We don't judge God to be loving. God judges our actions and our motives to be loving by whether or not they line up with him. There's only one person in the world, only one person in the universe who is patient and kind, who does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on his own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and that one person is the one who took the form of a man, though he was a perfect God, lived a perfect life for you and me, and then died a substitutionary death on your behalf when you could not do it. There is only one who embodies love, who is love. Think about Jesus. He was so patient and is so patient and kind to us. He gave himself up for us. He bare, he he. he bore our sin and our shame and he bears it still. He believes all things. Look, nobody knows all your mess ups, all your frailties and all your future mess ups except him. And he's the one, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that placed his value upon you by dying for you, shedding his blood for you. He hopes all things for us and he endures to the end. It says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and me. And that's why Paul says, lastly, that love, not only does, is love the has to be the fuel for true spirituality. That's the acid test. That only love can be the measure. That's the second acid test of our spirituality. But that love alone lasts. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. So he's saying spiritual experiences will pass away. Knowledge will pass away. For we, because now we know in part, but then we'll know him perfectly. So like all the knowledge that you think you have about this world or about the, the Bible or about God, it will, it, will be, it will be so small compared to when we see him face to face. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. But when he returns, you won't need faith and you won't need hope because you'll see him. But love will abide forever because God is love. So the true acid test of your spirituality, whether you're here and you say I'm a spiritual, I'm not, I'm not Christian, but I'm spiritual, or you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the true acid test of your spirituality is not your religious experiences that you have, it's not what you believe or what you know, it's not, it is only whether it is being motivated by love from the heart level to the measure that we just read. So how you and I stand in that. There's a great big gap between my love and what he's describing here. The only one who stands in that gap is Jesus Christ.
who was love embodied to us. And then in the life of a believer, he consistently, as we walk with him, as we study his word, as we share life with believers, as we pray and spend time with him, he begins to change our motivations deeper and deeper. He goes deeper and deeper into our motivations so that we more and more, though never fully on this side, we more and more reflect his measure of love. And our actions begin more and more to be motivated out of a true nature, not of fear and pride, but of love. Let's pray. Father, love alone lasts. As for knowledge, as for spirituality, as for spiritual experiences, as for what we believe, all those are great and important, but none of those determine whether we are spiritual or not. None of those determine whether the Christianity that we profess is real or not in us. That you've called us to be as a community, as individuals, as people who are motivated by love fueled our actions towards each other, fueled by love. But God, that measure, we cannot, we cannot measure up to it. I thank you that you stand in the gap for us and that it's only by your spirit working in our hearts that we can change over time to have that motivation based more and more by love. God, would you create us to be a people who are marked by that kind of love? May we be a people of action, a people of experiences, a people of knowledge. Let it all be motivated and fueled by the love that you poured out for us and that in response that we can then turn around and give that to each other. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.